0: Hey everybody, it's Lon Seidman. It's time once again for your weekly wrap up. And as many of you know, I started teaching a class at my alma mater, the University of Hartford. I teach the class on what I do for a living. And part of that is understanding a lot of the nuances of this business. And one of the big ones is copyright. And I thought what I would do today is do something that I'm going to be sharing with my class tomorrow, which is everything I think an independent content creator needs to know about copyright and how to stay out of trouble with rights holders. Let's get to it. Now, I want to let you know up front here that I am not a lawyer, so everything we're going to talk about today is not legal advice, just what I have learned as an independent creator, both to keep myself out of trouble and to ensure that I can protect the copyright that I have for my content. And what we're going to be looking at today are three main areas of copyright as it relates to independent creators. One is the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. That is the law here in the United States that governs a lot of how independent media works. That law was passed back in 1996, but its impact is still felt today and really governs how all of this stuff works for the most part. Related to the DMCA, but in a separate bucket, are platform terms of service. This is why platforms can decide who can stay on their platform and who gets kicked out. Additionally, they can also pull content down outside of the DMCA because you agree to things when you sign up for YouTube that uh, allows them to do those sorts of things outside of what the law might require. And then we're also going to look at fair use, not only how it works, but also the things that you are allowed to use that you did not create yourself. So let's take a look first at the law, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. And a big part of the burden of the DMCA goes onto the rights holder who has to eventually prove that they are the holder of the rights to a particular piece of content before somebody else's content can be taken off a platform. And one of the most important things about this law is that it provides a safe harbor to platforms like YouTube along with internet providers in that the platform and ISP is held harmless for copyright infringement so long as they act on complaints about copyright infringement. So that is why when someone files a DMCA takedown request to YouTube, they typically act on those very quickly if it looks like there is copyright infringement going on. Because if YouTube doesn't act on those things when they receive the complaints, YouTube could be held liable for copyright infringement in addition to the person that uploads the content. So the process here is pretty simple. A complaint comes in, the platform receives that complaint, and then they remove the content that is in question. However, the person whose content has been removed has an appeal process called a counterclaim. So what happens here is your content gets taken down, but you can go to the platform and say, hey, wait a minute. These clowns don't have the right to take this down, and here's why. And when that counterclaim is received by the platform, they have 14 days to restore the content, and then the next stage of the process begins here, which is a lawsuit. So if a counterclaim is filed, then the rights holder must file a federal lawsuit here in the US to have that content removed permanently. And this is where the costs really start to stack up because if you don't have a lot of money to defend yourself in court, you're not going to be able to survive this lawsuit process. And this is why a lot of times these things are tilted in the favor of the rights holders because those with the money here tend to win out versus those who don't have the money. However, there have been instances where YouTube has acted on the part of a creator When it's clear that the person filing the takedown claim was abusing the uh, DMCA process for their own benefit and it's good that YouTube has done that from time to time but they don't have to in fact it puts themselves perhaps in a little legal jeopardy there and there are consequences for abuse which is that if someone is making fraudulent DMCA claims they can be penalized and that would include monetary damages legal fees and in some cases, even criminal perjury charges. So for example, I file a lot of DMCA takedowns because people re-upload my content all the time and they put affiliate links on my videos to try to earn money from them. And I have a zero tolerance policy for that. It is not a fair use, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, but you'll notice here that when I go to file a takedown, I have to sign essentially an affidavit here saying that this Uh, Notification is accurate, and under penalty of perjury, I am authorized to say that I am the owner of this content. There's an actual uh, crime here that I could be committing if I am abusing the DMCA. And that is something that you have to be very careful about when you file these things, because if you are not the rights holder, and you know you're not, yet you file a DMCA takedown, Uh, you put yourself in serious legal jeopardy. Now on YouTube, there are additional penalties should you receive a DMCA takedown, and that is through their copyright strike system, and many other platforms have similar policies to YouTube here. Now, just like in baseball, if you get three strikes, you're out of here. They delete your channel and all of its content. On the first strike, they send you to copyright school to learn about what you did wrong, After you complete that and a little test, they let you back on to upload again, but the strike will stay on your channel for 90 days before it expires. So this is something that you should really uh, read up about because even an innocent mistake can actually get you knocked off of YouTube pretty quickly, especially if you were using copyrighted footage in multiple videos. So let's move on now to the platform terms of service. And this puts a greater burden on the creator because there's less consequences for false claims. Now these operate outside the DMCA and these takedown systems reside within, again, the platform terms of service. And when you upload to one of these services, you agree to those terms in order to use the platform. And just about every major platform can take content down outside of the formal DMCA process. Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, TikTok, you name it, they've got a process where you don't have to go through that arduous legal process to remove content. And the YouTube version of this is called Content ID. And the way this works is that YouTube puts an identification uh, fingerprint, if you will, on every video uploaded to the platform. And if they see that fingerprint again on somebody else's content, it will notify the original uploader to tell them, hey, somebody just re-uploaded your content, what do you wanna do about it? And you have essentially three options as the rights holder through the content ID system. You get more options actually than you do through a DMCA takedown. So one option is to monitor the content that you discover someone else uploading. And all that does is add all of the analytics of that video to your analytics so you can track the performance of it. You don't get any money from it, but the video stays up and you can keep an eye on how it is doing uh, on somebody else's channel. You also have the ability to monetize the video, which means that you can have the money from ads that run on that video go to you as opposed to the person who uploaded it And again, that's because you were the first one to upload that piece of content and have claimed ownership of it. And under that scenario, the video stays up, but all the ad revenue goes to you who's claimed ownership of that content. The third option is to block the content and that is not a takedown. It won't generate a copyright strike against the person that uploaded it, but the video is effectively removed from YouTube at this point because nobody can watch it if a block is applied. Now rights holders could decide to file a DMCA takedown, but most do not. And the reason is is that there's no legal consequences for filing a block against a content creator, whereas if they filed a DMCA takedown, There are some consequences that could come their way if they did something nefarious or just negligent. So most big content creators stick to the block because the block is effectively a takedown. But you do have some appeal process through the YouTube terms of service. So if you get a content ID claim that you think is incorrect, you can appeal it to the person that's filing the claim against you. Now, one of four things can happen here. The first is that the rights holder could agree with your disputed claim, and then they would release that claim against your content. And at that point, you get your monetization back and everything uh, goes back to normal. They could decide that their claim is still valid. And at that point, the rights holder would uphold the claim. You do have the ability to appeal this up to YouTube, but YouTube generally doesn't get involved with these types of disputes. Sometimes they do, but it's kind of rare. So generally, if on that appeal, the rights holder says, nope, it's still mine, uh, there's not much more you can do at that point. Uh, The third option, and this is the one that carries the most risk, is that they could end up deciding to issue a DMCA takedown against your content, and then that entire DMCA process that we talked about commences. Now, they can also just sit on it, and if they don't respond to the appeal that you've raised within 30 days, then it just expires and you get your rights back again. And I found a lot of large broadcasters tend to just wait it out because they can actually put some pain on your channel, especially if they're blocking a video. And if it's a news event, that video stays blocked for 30 days. Only after that uh, appeal expires does it come back onto the platform. So there's still a lot of power Uh, in the hands of people who have access to this Content ID system. But unfortunately, there are rarely any consequences for companies that abuse the Content ID system. And the reason is, is that this operates outside of the DMCA, so all those risks of perjury and everything else are not applicable here because they exist inside of YouTube's terms of service. And YouTube just doesn't like to get in the middle of these disputes. Here's a great example of something that happened to me about a year and a half ago. I covered the launch of the first crewed SpaceX mission to the space station. Now, like every other media organization covering the event that day, I used the feed coming from NASA to follow the events. And you can use NASA footage because it is in the public domain. It belongs to the US taxpayer, not any corporation. But Disney and National Geographic, who was doing their own coverage of the event, accidentally, or negligently in my opinion, claimed all of the public domain footage as their own inside of Content ID. They set all of their videos to automatically claim themselves, which is why this happened. But because everyone else was using public domain NASA footage, everyone else's content got taken down, including mine, by National Geographic and Disney. You can see here that the visibility was blocked, so I did not get a takedown, but they blocked visibility of the content. They even took down NASA's own video because they claimed it first through Content ID, and the content remained down for I think eight or nine or more hours, which means that anyone searching for coverage of this event was getting National Geographic's video and nobody else's. Now, they did apologize for this, but nobody got any restitution for the lost revenue that they had when the Disney video was the only one available on the YouTube platform. And this would have been something we'd have a little bit more leg to stand on had they filed DMCA takedowns versus a content ID takedown. Now there are though more and more media organizations getting frustrated with people abusing content ID or being negligent in its use, uh, this article here refers to Watch Mojo, which is a major content creator who's been really struggling with this problem. And they're looking at ways they might be able to sue the people filing content ID claims for damages. And it's possible you might be able to have those suits happen outside of federal court because this is not part of the DMCA process. So I think there will be some developments on this front, but you'll have to hire a lawyer and pay for a lawsuit to test whether or not you can collect damages for fraudulent content ID claims. And that brings us to the topic of fair use. Yes, there are times in which you can use somebody else's content legally and not be liable for copyright claims. The problem though, is that it's on you, the creator, to prove that you have made fair use of copyrighted content. And the only place where you can have that discussion is inside of a courtroom and that gets expensive and you'll find out how expensive in a minute here. Now the best way to learn about fair use, at least to start, is to head over to Columbia University's homepage. This link that I have on screen here, I think provides a really good concise definition about fair use and how to determine whether or not the content you're uploading might be their use. And they look at four factors in making that determination. And this is what courts look to when they have a fair use case in front of them. Now, the first factor is the purpose and character of the use of the copyrighted content. And generally here in the U.S., things like criticism and commentary and news reporting and parody are very much a protected portion of our speech. And if you are making a video that is critical of the original piece of content, generally it's allowed, but again, it's all up to a court to determine that based on the weight of all of these different factors we're covering here. They do tend to favor uses that are transformative in nature. So the more that you can cut away from that original, for example, to offer your commentary and make it different than the original, the better off you're going to be. But again, there's no certainty here that just meeting the first factor doesn't mean you fail on the other ones. Now the next factor is the nature of the copyrighted work. So for example, if you got your hands on an unpublished manuscript of a book or footage from a movie that hasn't been released yet, uh, the Columbia University folks here say that courts tend to uh, look at the copyright owner having the right to have a first publication before somebody can criticize it. So for example, if you got a copy of the new Star Wars script before the movie came out and started criticizing it, you may not have as much leg to stand on here because you have denied the copyright owner the right to first publication. Additionally, the courts do tend to protect art, music, poetry, fiction, novels, feature films, that sort of thing a little more heavily than they do works of nonfiction. Now this next one involves the amount or substantiality of the portion of copyrighted content used. And note here, Columbia University says the law does not set exact quantity limits, which means it's up to a court to determine whether or not you use too much or not. The rule of thumb here is to use just enough to make your point if you're doing criticism or parody or something along those lines. Because if you go beyond that, you fall into the fourth factor, which is the uh, potential market impact of you reusing somebody else's work. So for example, if I just upload somebody's video and talk over it, that might not cut it here because I'm allowing someone to watch somebody else's work on my channel. You really have to take efforts to transform the content and make it your own and follow the other factors here in order to cover yourself. Now these cases are very expensive to defend and that's why there are so few examples. You can head over to the Fair Use Index on the US Copyright website to see some examples of recent cases, but very few of those involve online video creators. So if you do get sued, there's a good chance the courts haven't looked at a case like yours before, and you're going to have an expensive uphill battle to prove that your use of copyrighted material on your YouTube channel constitutes fair use. It will cost you a lot when you've got one of those uphill legal battles. Uh, H3H3, the popular YouTube commentators, found themselves in a pretty hefty lawsuit that they decided to fight. Now the H3H3 video was a reaction video where they played a portion of somebody else's work, commented on that portion, played another portion, and then had additional commentary, and they went through the entire original video in that way. And one of the many claims against them by the rights holder of that video they were commenting about said they used too much of it, and the court eventually sided with H3H3, determining that their use was a fair use, and we can look at what led to that decision here. So let's look at all the different factors. Uh, The court concluded that the first factor, purpose and character of the infringing work, weighed heavily in the defendant's favor. The defendants are H3H3 because their video is quintessential criticism and comment, So they won on the first factor. The second factor involves the nature of the copyrighted work. That favored the plaintiff because the work was entirely scripted and fictional. Remember we talked about how the courts weigh things a little bit more in favor of fictional work? Well, there's an example of it. The third factor, amount and substantiality of the portion used was neutral because to comment on and critique a work, clips of the original work may be used, and their use of clips was plainly necessary and reasonable to accomplish the transformative purpose of the critical commentary. So the uh, H3H3 folks won on that front, but they lost on this one. Uh, But at the same time, a great deal of the plaintiff's work was copied. So this factor was neutral in that they used a lot, but they also made proper use of that, which is why the court didn't rule one way or the other on that factor. Now, the final factor, the effect of the use upon the potential market weighed in favor of H3H3, the defendants, because their video does not serve as a market substitute for the original. And you can see how none of these things are a clear-cut case. They have to be analyzed, and to go through that process, again, you've got to go to court, which costs a lot of money. Uh, one bill that Ethan got for one month of this case was $50,000, and I think he spent uh, well north, north of $100,000 on this case. He was able to raise money from the community to help him in that cause, but you can see just to win this case and not get anything out of it other than the ability to put your video back up, it was probably well over $100,000 to defend that fair use argument. Now, there's a lot of content out there that you can use freely, and one of the best things that I think has ever happened in this world was the creation of the Creative Commons license. You can read more about it on the link that you see on screen here. But basically, a lot of creators allow for their content to be used without a fee or any kind of risk of copyright suit. One of my favorite places to look for media to use in this way is the Wikimedia Commons, which you can find at the link you see on screen here. Many of the images you might find on Wikipedia, the big encyclopedia, are often public domain or Creative Commons licensed, but you've gotta pay attention to the license because not every Creative Commons license will allow you to use content for commercial purposes, for example, or allow you to take portions of that content and transform it into something else. Uh, So for example, this is the license that was assigned to the Columbia University page that we were just looking at. This is a pretty open license. The only thing they want is an attribution to its author, Dr. Kenneth D. Cruz. And if you follow the instructions on the license here, you're good. But you might encounter things like this one where yes, you can use the the work for non-commercial purposes but not for commercial purposes. And if you have a monetized YouTube channel, That is a commercial use, so you've got to be careful here to make sure you're not using the license incorrectly because that can also make you liable for a lawsuit even if it is licensed in the Creative Commons. Now there's also public domain content that can be used without any attribution necessary. But there's no central repository for what is public domain versus not. So you do have to do some due diligence on a piece of content that you want to use that you think might be in the public domain because it might not be. Uh, The other thing of course is that government agencies like NASA that we talked about before, uh, most if not all of their content is in the public domain and can be used freely without attribution. Uh, One thing that I would be very careful about is going through Google Images, for example, and just grabbing things willy-nilly from there, because there are law firms that actually bait images on these websites, and the second they find it in use somewhere, they come after you with a claim. A friend of mine got hit with that. You know, pay them a couple hundred bucks or they'll take you to court. So be very, very careful whenever you use images or video or text, that you did not create to ensure that you're using it properly, especially if you think it's in the public domain or is licensed for a Creative Commons use, for example. So that's gonna do it for this quick look at copyright as a independent content creator. Hopefully you found this useful. There's a lot more to talk about on this topic. I tried to keep it as short and succinct as possible, so I would love to hear your thoughts on it down below in the comment stream. Now this week's wrap up as always is being brought to you by all of you. We didn't have any new supporters this week, but we did have two folks who contributed via a super chat during one of my live streams. Josiah Guernsey and Grayson Petty were those super chatters and I wanna thank them both along with everyone who's been contributing to the channel on an ongoing basis and all of you who watch on a regular basis too because all of those things equal channel growth. If you wanna support the channel, you can. You can go to lon.tv support and make a monthly or a one-time contribution to the channel via my donor box page. We also support Patreon, the YouTube membership program and Floatplane. We have other channels you can find me on including my Amazon shop down there at the bottom where you can find most of my reviews ad-free along with live streams and a whole bunch of other fun stuff. And then of course we have ways to engage with the channel. My very infrequent email list at lon.tv slash email. We have a very active Facebook group and Discord. Both are growing by leaps and bounds every week. And then of course we've got my store where you can buy previously reviewed items that I am now getting rid of. And if you want to get an alert whenever one of those items shows up in the store, You can go to lon.tv slash store alert to sign up for that email list. And every time I add something, I push out an email to let you know that it's there. Uh, These are items that I purchased for review, and there's only one of everything, so you may wanna get on that email list to see if the thing you're looking for is gonna pop up on there. And that is going to do it for this week's weekly wrap up. I wanna thank you all for your continued support and feedback. Let me know what you thought of this video down in the comments below, and this will be my lecture for tomorrow night's class. Until next time, this is Lon Seibin. Thanks for watching. This channel is brought to you by the Lon.TV supporters, including Gold Level supporters, Jim Tannis and Tom Albrecht, Hot Sauce and Video Games and Eric's Variety Channel, Brian Parker and Frank Goldman, Amda Brown and Matt Zagaya, and Chris Allegretta.